0: episode 297 of Monster Kid Radio. Do you know where your monsters are? Well, I've got them right here on the podcast. We're kicking off this episode of this show with the song Night Creatures and Me. It comes from the Russian surf band Surfin' Nano Robots. It's on their album 7 O'Clock. You can find them on Bandcamp and on Facebook. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes so you can check that out after you're done listening to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show everybody. Now this week I got kind of a two for a double feature okay? So first of all we're going to talk to a longtime friend of the show, Jackie Ray Naman jones She played Debbie in the original *Monos: the Hands of Fate, and she has a prominent part to play in that movie's sequel, *Monos Returns. We're going to talk with her about the sequel, about 50 years of *Monos*. Yeah, that movie is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. So we're going to talk with her, catch up with her, see what's going on, hear about some upcoming events that she's involved with. That's going to be fun. And then after that... We're going to keep talking about some Night Creatures because we're going to talk about the 2017 movie, The Mummy, the now official first film of the Universal Shared Universe that they're going to be doing here, directed by Alex Kurtzman, starring Tom Cruise. The trailer dropped. Stephen D. Sullivan is coming to Monster Kid Radio. We're going to talk about that on the show this week as well. So we get pretty in-depth on the trailer And we don't have any inside knowledge. We haven't seen the movie, obviously. It's not even done yet. We haven't read any scripts. All the information that we talk about during that conversation is available on the internet. However, we do dive deep. And maybe there are some spoilers if you're trying to avoid trailers. Or if you're just really not interested in the 2017 Mummy film. I'll make sure you guys and gals know when that conversation starts. And when it will end. So you can just skip ahead. Although, I hope you don't. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I had fun recording that with Steve. I had a blast recording with Jackie. You know what? I want to get to all of that, so why don't we dive into that right after this?
1: 1966 The space race is on The Cold War is heating up And giant monsters Are destroying Japan Daikaiju Attack The serialized Giant monster story Presented free every week On DaikaijuAttack.com And SDSullivan.com Become a member Of the Daikaiju Attack group On Facebook Join the action today.
2: The Screaming Skull is a motion picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. It may kill you. Therefore, its producers feel they must assure free burial services to anyone who dies of fright while seeing the Screaming Skull. Be sure to bring someone with you who can identify you when you see the Screaming Skull. Only this lost soul Half man, half ghost knows the secret of the living dead's curse. The torturous agony that saturates these walls and makes the shutters creak with almost human pain. Terrorizing those who dare to love with the maddening, jealous shriek of the screaming skull. What diabolic demon dares touch the screaming skull? What ghoulish thoughts control this poor man's demented mind? What does he know? What secret, horrifying, and blood-curdling is he hiding? Nothing is more terrifying than the spine-chilling breath of a vampire woman, ghostly, ghastly, as unreal as a will-o'-the-wisp, as real as the skull.
3: Karloff. Take this gun. Escort this gentleman from the castle. If he resists, kill him. The terror. His evil mystic powers go beyond man's wildest imaginings. terror empowered to avenge to reward to transform
4: i do love you
3: is she a blood and flesh beauty a man can enjoy
4: i am possessed of the dead
3: or is she a gossamer myth created by a madman's distorted desires
2: take your life as you took mine And bring us together forever.
3: Join Boris Karloff, the Frankenstein monster of all horror motion pictures, in his most blood-chilling screen experience.
0: was saying just before we started recording that we now live in a world in which we are celebrating 50 years of Manos, the Hands of Fate, and I wanted to welcome back to the show, Jackie Naiman-Jones. Jackie, how are you?
5: I'm doing great, thank you. It
0: has been quite some time since we've had you on the show, but you've been so busy with everything coming up, Manos.
5: Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. It's like I'm still not making any money at it, and I don't know if I ever will, <laughs> but... Uh, I can't seem to stop, but really, I, I was thinking, just in the last two years, I wrote a book and published it, mm-hmm. and I produced the sequel to Manos, Manos Returns, just in less than two years. I mean, huh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a lot of stuff going on, stuff that you're involved with, stuff that you're not involved I mean, Manos is just part of the, I would almost say, pop culture at this point.
5: It really is. It's like it's, uh, I've been watching it for a while and nudging it, of course, <laughs> but sure. it's certainly not a single-handed uh, affair because nobody can do that. Culture takes what it wants and it's embraced Manos. You know, it became famous known as the worst movie ever made, which is highly debatable because there's so many really bad movies. But now it's been just on uh Turkey Day, MST3K Turkey Day, declared as the MST fan favorite, the greatest MST fan favorite of all time. That's indisputable.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was something else, too. I was watching the Turkey Day Marathon off and on throughout the day, and I made sure I tuned in to see what their number one pick was going to be. And when Manos came up, I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah.
5: I was, uh, at my family's that day and it was, it was a rough day for us anyway. You know, it will get me sure. about my dad and all, but you know, I didn't hear about it till the next day. I actually drove up to my boyfriend and I drove up to, uh, to Tacoma to visit a bunch of our cast members from Monos Returns. We're getting together because now that we've done that film, we are family and they got together, and uh, we drove up, and that's where I found out about it. It was amongst my Mono's family. That was really great.
0: Oh, that's fitting, isn't it?
5: Yeah, and they pulled it up on the ginormous screen TV and showed it to me. So
0: that was so <laughs> cool.
5: Seeing uh, Jonah Ray and Joel talking about it was really wonderful.
0: It has been kind of a whirlwind year with everything going on with the book and the movie. The book came out, what, in March of this year?
5: Yeah, the end of March. You know, the way it works with my publisher is I don't get my first royalties till nine months after. So that's the end of December. That's what I understand. So I honestly, I've it's like having a baby, you know, I don't really want to know until I see the check. (laughs) So I have no idea. I mean, and authors know when they have a publisher, they don't get a whole lot out of that sale price. <laughs> but hopefully the numbers add up, you know, and, and it's something I can work with. But I'll tell you this, it's just going to go right back into mono stuff. Because <laughs> that's what I do. I, I keep the machine going out of my own pocket, a few T-shirt sales,
0: but that's, sure. that's about it. The name of the book was uh, Growing Up with Monos, The Hands of Fate, How I Was a Child Star of the Worst Movie Ever Made and Lived It to Tell the Story. It was from Bear Manor Media. I'm a big fan of Bear Manor. I have a lot of their here, including Growing Up Monos.
5: Well, that's great. They yeah. were my top choice for publisher. It was crazy how it worked out. We sent a pitch letter and got a response back within 24 hours oh, going, wow. yes.
0: <laughs> wow. I'm a huge
5: monos fan. Send me several chapters, and we did, and... We had a contract, like,
0: immediately. And the reaction to the book, as far as I can tell, because I follow you on Facebook and all, has been pretty good.
5: All the reviews are great. I'm getting pretty much five stars across the board. And and what it is is that, you know, it, it humanizes Manos. And I wrote a book that I wanted anybody to be able to enjoy. You don't have to know anything about the film to get something from the book. It's a story about... A group of, of passionate and determined uh, stage actors got together and were led down this path to making a movie, hoping it would lead to better things, which for each person, they had different reactions to it. And for the most part, everybody just wanted to forget about it. But as a child, I was in a very unique position because to me, it was the greatest time of my childhood, spending time with my daddy, and being part of this thing where I was the only kid, it was very, very special. So I solidified those memories. And in my research was able to find people who had never been credited that were part of it, but they'd never been credited in the first place. And for the most part, they were all very happy to talk to me. I found three of the wives, for instance, you know, I found the musicians who did the soundtrack and So, it's a really good story taking you from El Paso in the 60s on through now and all the amazing projects that have been created inspired by Monos fans and then the dark side with uh, Hal Warren's son trying to, you know, extort money from people and such.
0: (laughs) Sure. It is an interesting book in that when you think about Manos, I think people immediately go to MST3K and ha, 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 you know, it's the worst movie ever made, which I also debate. The book itself does take a a very heartfelt look at the production of the movie, the people that were involved. And it's a wonderful story. I mean, that it's true that it's real life. It's a bonus, but it's just a wonderful story. And I really enjoyed it.
5: Thank you. I'm especially now, you know, I'm just, so glad that I wrote it, and um I'll say that my dad played the master, and uh his birthday was actually November 23rd, his birthday is the day before Thanksgiving, but he passed away suddenly, his heart stopped on uh November 12th. I was in Chicago, actually, I was appearing for a restoration screening at the Chicago Music Box on Friday night, and he passed away on Saturday, and it's just been a whirlwind since then, because on the heels of that was the 50th anniversary on the 15th, then his birthday, and then the Turkey Day celebration the day after announcing that Manos is the greatest fan favorite of all time. It's, like, just amazing and incredible, and um honestly, it's like, it feels like he's really nudging this thing, you know? Like, <laughs> it feels like he did it just the way he wanted I miss him horribly, but I, I know that, uh, the time that we had in the last couple years sharing this mono stuff and the, the healing that we had in between us and in our family because of monos is, um, just, it's there. You know, you can't, that's there. It's, it's, um, uh, magic. Wonderful.
0: When that announcement came out on Facebook and we had learned what had happened, and I know I speak for a lot of people and a lot of fans and a lot of friends. Our hearts went out to you because we knew you were in Chicago and just, mm-hmm. you know, the show must go on. And I and I understand that you had a screening and an interview and everything lined up. You couldn't just run off. So I know I sent you a card. and I know a lot of people did, but my condolences.
5: Uh, thank you so much. I mean, the support around me, not just of uh, my friends and and my family, but. God, the support is just incredible. And my dad could never, I shared things with him all the time, but sorry, <laughs> he never really uh mm-hmm. was able to get it, you know, how much people just really adored him and appreciate what he'd done. He, he was such a humble guy and that was such a negative blip, you know, it's hard to get over that, <laughs> what it was at the time for all these people you know, that just wanted to forget it, but he enjoyed the resurgence so much, and I enjoyed every opportunity to share it with him, and, uh you know, he might have missed hearing the news about it being the greatest <laughs> 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 MST fan favorite, but he did not miss all the love, you know, he had some amazing opportunities to hmm. really feel the love, and, and very recently, so. But I appreciate it. It's, gosh, it's, the support is incredible and it's just incredible. The people that have private messaged me and and, uh, publicly. So my next step though, and this is, this is my plan before, Mm -hmm. but uh, now because of my dad, I just feel more determined to do this, but I'll be doing um, public speaking at colleges and universities because Monos has been taught in many schools as everything not to do in filmmaking, for one
0: thing. (laughs) Really? There are actually courses about that?
5: Yes. Oh, Oh, yes. I've met a number of fans that came to Monos through film school. So I'm seeking opportunities as a paid speaker to go to universities. And at the same time, it's kind of a three-prong approach. I'll speak at the universities. I want to do restoration screenings at local independent theaters. And and then bookstore signings with my book. So uh, I did that in Chicago. We had the restoration screening, and then I had a book signing at Bucket of Blood that Sunday. And then I'm going up to uh, Tacoma at the Blue Mouse on December 10th for a screening of the restoration, and I'll have books there. And I'm working on doing a podcast, a live podcast at Comic Dungeon on the 8th. So oh, wow. we're just kind of working out details
0: there. Just to cut in here real quick, the Growing Up Monos book signing is actually happening at the Comics Dungeon in Seattle on December 9th. That date was decided upon after Jackie and I recorded. So if you're interested and you're in the area, that's the day you want to head up to the Comics Dungeon to support Jackie. All right, back to the conversation with her.
5: That's the plan. I've also got connections in Decatur, Illinois at – um the Lincoln Theater, which is a famously haunted theater, and we're working out a, a way to get me there for speaking engagements and um, the restoration screening. And then, of course, uh, when Monos Returns come out, we've got offers to do double features in several places.
0: Monos Returns. I I can't wait to see this thing. I've been following the production of that online. I contributed to the crowdfunding. I'm wearing my Monos Returns t-shirt right now.
5: Wonderful.
0: You know, I I can't wait.
5: Well, I'm very, very proud of this project. I mean, it's the will of Monos. We were like, supremely guided. Things were given to us and came to us in unbelievable ways. For this micro, micro budget that we had, even though we went past our first goal, it still is micro budget. The things that we were able to accomplish on that just because of the generosity of people giving their time and the car that was loaned to us for free came at the last minute. 1967 blue Mustang convertible, perfect condition. It was like our dream car. I had envisioned a car like that, and it came to us literally two days before we needed it. Oh, wow. I'm very, very excited. Or cast, it was perfect. These people are now family.
0: With the sequel, was it something that you had come up with, the director had come up with and came to you? What started the whole ball rolling?
5: Well, it's, it's kind of a strange story because all of us knew other people, like... I met Joe Sherlock, our director of photography, at Crypticon two years ago, and he was doing a film that he asked me to be in, uh, Curse of Pelican Bay, which we did film and is released now, and I'm very proud of. And through that, he had a friend who was a writer in Florida, and then Joe knew Tanya, and I knew Rachel Jackson, who we hired as our assistant director and also one of the wives. Tanya Atomic out of Seattle is our director. She knew Joe and she knew Rachel. So we all just kind of came together. And it started out, the guy in Florida started writing us a script. And it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. <laughs> he ended up um resigning, like, after the Kickstarter money. And suddenly we have no script. Oh, no. So we completely scrapped that script and started over but we had already filmed my dad so luckily we had filmed a lot of extra stuff when we filmed him and we were able to use a lot of it and then we had him in the recording studio doing some voice work later to bring it fuller so we got what we wanted from my dad Think monos. <laughs> yeah so then I called Rachel and Tanya and this is where it became very clear what kind of people I was working with. I called them and I said, don't panic. We don't have a script and we need to write it. So they we immediately in three different places started on Skype and through the computer just started writing and started talking about what we wanted the script to look like, what would honor best the original people, the fans MST, you know, the whole gamut. We had to to do it right. And we had to honor people and since we were women, we had to give women more power. You know, it's time. The 60s was a male-centric time and but we also had to have balance, you know. We didn't want some hard feminist film, you know, nothing like that. We just wanted it to be fair. And and uh that's what we did. We wrote this incredible script they give me first billing, but honestly, Rachel, I think did the lion's share of the writing, and Tanya did. I mean, the two of them did most of the writing, and we all worked together every step to create this script. And I just love it.
0: I can't wait to see the movie. It's in post production right now, right? Yes,
5: you know, we re- released um, a trailer. In fact, I got to show that in Chicago before the the restoration and. The audience of, I guess it was 250, 300 people loved it. They were so enthusiastic about our project. Wow. That was great. So as producer, I have the supreme honor of getting to see and hear the music as it's created. So I get to see a lot of the rough cuts and even rough. It's just beautiful. I followed my dad's footsteps in this. I'm Debbie 50 years later, but I run the place. As the master did, <laughs> and I'm not very pleasant, as you can imagine. It's a wonderful. I love it. What else can I say about it? It's just, oh, I don't know. I just think we've done an
0: awesome job. Yeah, I, I don't want to hear any spoilers. I want to be surprised. Oh, no. Yeah.
5: No, my director would kill me. <laughs> Rightfully so. She's been so measured and, and so good. Tanya's just so good about holding back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what What's the timeline? Do you know when we might see it actually available for people?
5: Yeah, I mean, it's coming along really well. And originally we had hoped to have it released by the 50th. But the reality of the situation as we went along was in order to submit to film festivals, we can't show it publicly. So we're working on our, our film festivals timing wise right now because we want to get it out to at least three and as soon as that is done, then we'll be showing it everywhere. We're looking wow. at uh, distribution right now. You know, we want to show it in theaters and find the best way to distribute it without selling our souls. Oh,
0: <laughs> well, sure.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure the will of Monos will make it happen one way or the other, right?
5: Oh, I have total faith. It's it's not steered me wrong yet. <laughs> I'm serious.
0: It's strange. I can't... It is nuts to me. I just... When I first discovered the movie, I, I fell in love with it. And I think I've watched Monos The Hands of Fate, straight without MST3K more than I've watched it rift. Wow. And I just... There's something about it that just keeps calling me back. And I just enjoy it for what it is. And I just have so much fun with it. And to know that it's still chugging along. There's still the Mono's machine making stuff happen i love that idea I, like i said at the beginning of this i love that we live in a world where we're celebrating 50 years of this movie and um, beyond
5: yeah, yeah it just i just can't say how much it means to me personally i'm i've always described myself as a pebble in the pond person you know i i enjoy engaging with people and helping people and my first love was psychology. My mother was a psychologist and but I wasn't I wasn't the schooling type, you know. More <laughs> sort of an independent artist type. And uh Monos this whole thing has really given me a platform to to feed my heart and soul and to be who I am in the world and I just wanna keep going. You know, my kids are raised, I have the freedom now to go anywhere I want, as long as I can pay the bill, you know. So <laughs> so if I can get some speaking engagements and get out there, then I can spread the, the love of Monos to the world. You know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you're not doing it alone. There's so much stuff coming out because the film's in the public domain. People are still making Monos products. This past year, a friend of Monster Kid Radio, Stephen D. Sullivan, has put out two novels right, based on Monos.
5: I wrote a little uh, forward, both of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read them both?
5: I haven't read them both. I read the serious one; it's very scary, and I I read part of the comedy one. I haven't finished it yet, though.
0: I mean, I'm assuming Steve talked to you, or at least approached you about the books, or let you know he was doing it. What was your thought when you found out about it?
5: Well, Steve and I had been friends for a while, and mm-hmm. he'd always been supportive. You know, he's very open about what he was doing, and I'm I love monos related projects. You know, when I hear about things, I usually try to let people know I'm around. Not like I want to be part of their project. I just like to be in the loop. Sure. In fact, you know, we just, I just did a pretty good interview with, uh, it was actually my dad's first and only podcast interview. And it was on Tuesday before I went to Chicago on Splat House. But then they did this, they, they did like an hour and a half thing all about monos And um, they'd done a lot of research online and we're saying a lot of things that were perpetuating the Monos mythology. So I I talked to them about it and they said, Hey, well, let's do another one and let's riff our own podcast and clean up the mythology. I'm like, how cool is that? You know, that that they're so open to helping me do that. Cause that's kind of always been my quest from the beginning was, you know, the truth is more interesting than all the made up stories out there far as i'm concerned and apparently all these people that are reading my book agree with me
0: <laughs> well that's always a plus right <laughs> like you said it's five stars reviews you know it's a good book
5: almost across the board a yeah. couple four stars i'm like what
0: <laughs> oh come on now i'd give it five i'd give it five and there's five fingers on your hand you'll know, say so hands of fate i'll give you five stars you know
5: <laughs> why are you splitting hairs man
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the Manos mythology, and I think we talked a little bit about this the first time I had you on the show, and I've heard you talk about it before. Before this big push to get the true story out, there's all these tall tales about nobody in the cast survived and all this other stuff. I, mean, I remember that Hotel Torgo documentary, that little short piece. And, I mean, it might be a fun story to think about. You no, know, Nobody survived to tell the tale, but I find the truth so much more fascinating.
5: Right. It is. I mean... Anybody can make up a story. Right. Yeah, I prefer the truth. And then since I wrote the book, then other people have come forward, and there's more stories. So I'm thinking, well, maybe there's another book's worth, or at least something short. oh Just to continue the, the conversation.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, Don't tease me, Jackie. That'd be awesome. That'd be great.
5: Yeah, but not only that, but all the things that have happened since I wrote the book. A lot has happened since then.
0: I mentioned Steve's books. We're talking about the, the movie. What are some of the other things that have happened since the book? Can you talk about it without spoiling anything?
5: No. Okay. Not really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <not right> now.
0: <laughs> Go, going back to the Manos mythology, what are some of the biggest myths that you've heard lately that you've had to debunk? Say, no, that's not how it happened. Can you think of anything?
5: It's it's more of the old stuff. You okay. know, like Diane Marie died in a fiery car crash. And I talked to her about that once. And she said she laughed. She said, Well, I did have an accident, but I didn't even go to the hospital. So I don't know what that's about, you know, (laughs) you know, Torgo that the big one is John Reynolds wearing the knee braces wrong Mm. that he himself invented and then got addicted to painkillers and killed himself because of that. And I say, well, it was filmed in eight days, so you don't really get addicted to painkillers in a week and then kill yourself because of it. Right. Oh, I know what I was going to say earlier about Monos Returns is that mm-hmm. I'm following in my father's footsteps because uh, he created the, the look of Monos, the right. sets and the props and the costumes, the artwork. And I'm doing the same in Monos Returns. And that's one way we cut budget is, uh, I didn't sew the costumes except for a couple things, but I designed the look of the film the costumes and the props. And I'm very proud of it. I think it just visually, it looks great. Everything looks great. But <laughs> I'm proud of it. I'm proud of everybody that was part of it.
0: There's a, a distinct look when you think about Manos, the original, uh, that I, I don't think you can get away from, from the portrait to the robe. I mean, there's just a look and aesthetic that I, I'm eager to see it. Evolved for the, the sequel. I'm eager to see how it turns out. I love the robe. One of these days, I'm going to order a robe from you.
5: Good. Yeah. <laughs> One well, of these I days. Carry through a lot, you know, symbolically and, and for people that are really paying attention, they'll catch some of those things and some of them are pretty funny. <laughs> I can't wait to see what people catch. But for me as an artist, a lot of my work is subliminal. It always has been because it's about a feeling. It's about invoking something from somebody that is subconscious and so some people will catch it and some people will just feel it
0: Uh, one thing i wanted to ask you about did you catch the tv show elementary last year when they had a little bit with torgo and and john reynolds in there
5: yeah i did i heard about that and then i found it thinking it was just going to be you know mentioned and it was amazing that the whole story revolved around torgo
0: (laughs) how does that happen
5: (laughs) i don't know it's fascinating but, you know, Monos has popped up in syndicated cartoons or comics, newspaper comics. It's uh, been in cartoons. It pops up. Images. And it's crazy.
0: It's you, everywhere. You know, the movie's called Monos Returns, but I've seen, you know, that trailer that's online, that little teaser. Torgo Returns.
5: Yeah, you
0: have a Torgo, and I'm i was surprised to learn that because I thought he was kind of ushered out of the movie at one point. <laughs> the original, well, he you know, ran kinda... up
5: in the desert with his hand on fire, but you never saw him die. H-
0: how do you bring Torgo back? And again, I don't want you to spoil the movie, but how did you cast Torgo?
5: Oh God, he's perfect. And I'm, I'm telling you, we had a lot of people who wanted to be Torgo, a lot. <laughs> yeah, and Stephen Shields is he just. Nailed it just what we wanted. I mean, he's not John Reynolds. Nobody's John Reynolds, but he brings that character, but he brings himself to it in such a magical way. I really think people are going to embrace him. I really do. Because that was a hard thing to do. But, you know, with Bring It, you have to remember it's like the Valley Lodge is a magical place and The master is not dead the way you know it, and Manos is permanent. And everybody kind of lives in a... There's lots of different ways of being alive or being dead, for that matter. And we explore some of the different levels in our film. We have some really funny parts, and we really have some very cool, creepy stuff. I love the creepy stuff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm eager to see that, because I I know originally... Yeah, Monos was supposed to be a horror movie, and there are some moments in the original that, that could go creepy, and you know, just yeah. it didn't quite go that way. But, it's smart. yeah, I'm eager to see how Monos Returns actually pulls that off. I mean, I, I'm excited.
5: Well, our goal was to make the best possible film we could with the resources that we had. I feel very good about what we accomplished. You know, it's not a Hollywood blockbuster. It's, you know, it's not Star Wars, but it's our film. And I think we did really great. I think we made very good choices with our budget.
0: I think the big question I have for you about the new movie Is it your voice this time, or is it dubbed again?
5: (laughs) It's absolutely my voice, and I will give you a little spoiler. Uh Uh-oh. When you watch the trailer, the voice singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, Mm -hmm. that's Diane Marie. Oh, wow. That's Maggie. Margaret. Wow. Row,
4: row, row your boat, gently down the stream, Mary.
5: Yeah, she can sing.
0: (laughs) How great that you got her to come back for the movie, too. That's amazing.
5: We all have our own voices. (laughs) So my dad is in it as Mm -hmm. the master. I'm in it as Debbie. Diane Marie is still there at the Valley Lodge. We've both been there a long time, 50 years. And then our sheriff in our film is actually the son of the original sheriff. William Brian Jennings was the original and Brian Jennings, who looks so much like his daddy, is our new sheriff. And then our Kickstarter backers are in it mm-hmm. that earned the right to be there. Our deputy, Darlene, is the deputy sheriff. She's one of our backers. And she was perfect. It was just crazy how our backers fit their characters just like it was made for them. I don't
0: know how this stuff works, but I'm going with it. It probably was kind of made for them. I mean, this, people that are excited about this movie are fans, and I can't wait. Yeah. I, I know I've said it a couple of times. I can't wait to see the movie. I just really cannot see or wait to see how it turns out. To know that there are so many people that have so much heart and passion for monos involved in the project. What was uh, Diane's reaction when you reached out to her about being in the movie?
5: She was excited. You know, I've been in touch with her since 2011. There was a sequel that was supposed to happen that failed and just went down a very dark path back in, I think, 2011. But the good thing that happened from that experience was we were brought together again. You know, the person who put that together found her and Brian Jennings and we remained friends. And that was one of the reasons I decided Monos Returns had to happen was for my dad to be able to see himself in a way that, that was positive and not how he felt about how he was in Monos. I mean, he enjoyed the fandom, but it never changed the fact that he felt really embarrassed by <laughs> Monos. <laughs> so I wanted to give him the opportunity to do something that he could be proud of and that could bring the other cast members back together and to honor the fans and so I feel like we really did that. He didn't get to see it, but when I had him over to my house Tuesday before I went 4 days before he died, I showed him the trailer and I showed him some other things and and uh, we just sat down and I got to got to share a lot with him. So he saw everything that we had up till now
0: and he was happy. That's fantastic. And I think it's going to be a great way to kind of look at his legacy when the movie comes out, just to see where it's come from and where it's gone. Uh, the pictures of him in the robe look amazing.
5: Yeah. Oh, he was awesome. <laughs> he is still a handsome man. <laughs> you know? Yeah, still a handsome man. But you know what I've seen happen just real quickly and recently, and I think now with uh, with the Turkey Day celebration announcement about monos I think that when we first started doing Monos Returns, there was a number of people that were thinking just automatically that we're setting out to make a bad movie. Even Joel Hodgson made a comment at a con about wondering how that would turn out us making a bad movie, but that's never been our intention. But the thing that shifted is now people seem to be, they're not waiting to see what we do wrong. They really want us to succeed. I I see this huge shift. People want us to succeed. I mean, if we're not, if we're, if they don't like it, I expect them to say so. <laughs> don't pretend that it's something it's not. But I think people are really looking forward to being supportive.
0: I know I am, and I've been friends with Joe for years, and just knowing that he's involved makes me excited. Knowing that you're involved makes me really excited. I I can't wait, Jackie. I want to go to the future and see the movie now.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Gotta wait. We all gotta wait. But it's happening. I mean, we just, Corey Pujamari, who's doing our music, and Derek, uh, sorry, Blank, who's our editor, uh, just such talented people. We're just so fortunate. You know, we didn't have to do a lot of We'll Fix It in the Lab. And uh, the things that do need fix and can be fixed because we have good people. So I can't wait either.
0: <laughs> you mentioned the musician and the music. One of the identifying features, I feel, of the original film, obviously, is Torgo's theme. But all of the music in the original has such a a place in that film. Yeah. With, with the score that's coming up for the new film, did you intend to kind of evoke the original? Or is it its own new thing? Is Torgo's theme in it somewhere?
5: Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, we're staying very much with the original music, updating it, you know, bringing it more, a little brighter and fresher. But, uh, Corey is a huge fan of Manos and he's being just so respectful of the music because if you listen to the soundtrack, it's very good. Uh, Robert Smith and Russ Huddleston, Robert Smith did the music, did the score, and Russ Huddleston wrote the lyrics. And it's very good, very jazzy. But hearing it, the new music that Corey's doing, is uh, it's an earworm. It just gets in your head. I love it. It's just great. So Nikki Mathis was the original singer of Forgetting You and Love Inside This Magic Circle. And I actually found her when I was writing my book. And she agreed to recreate her song, so we've already recorded her. It's out there, the new music. And it's good. I I love it. I love what Corey's done and uh he's taken some really good music and really shown people just how good it really is.
0: I'm a soundtrack collector, so I'm eager to hear it and I would if there's a soundtrack album release, you know, I'm gonna snatch that right up. I'm just saying. You know.
5: Yeah, we'll definitely do that. That's part of our master plan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's see, we got the movie, we got the book, we've got all these different things coming. Are you aware of any other Monos projects people are putting together down the line?
5: There's some video projects mm-hmm. uh, people are doing, but um, nothing big that I can think of right now. You know, there's a couple coloring books out,
0: um, <laughs> which which are awesome. Good. That's, that's um, awesome. <laughs>
5: it's the same Jordan Colton, I think. It's a beautiful coloring book. It's, I don't know, 150 pages, 300 pages. It's a lot. I enjoy just relaxing and coloring in it. I won't let my granddaughter color in it because I don't want it outside the lines. <laughs> 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 I need to get her her own copy. And then Keith McCaffrey did a coloring book a few years ago. His is out there. I, I keep seeing new Monos merchandise, people doing t-shirts. And I even bought I bought one, uh, a cartoon of the master. It says, kill, kill, kill. Master has decreed it or something. And um, my dad actually wore it. I have a picture of him wearing it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, you know, when I see stuff like that, I would buy it for him. He's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I just want to say, too, that when I first started writing my book, I'd been writing my blog, Blogspot. Mm -hmm. And I just had to stop because I couldn't do both. But now, starting with the 50th anniversary, I started writing again. So there's a couple new posts, and um, I intend to write every week because there's a lot of news. And uh, that's kind of your one-stop place to see what's going on.
0: Well, that's great. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well. I I was reading the blog regularly, and I did see that kind of slowed down a little bit while you were working on the book, that it's going to be ramping back up. That's great.
5: Yeah, I want to get back to weekly posts because there's a lot going on, and that's helpful to me because then I can go back and
0: check myself,
5: dates and all.
0: (laughs) Over the course of doing Monster Kid Radio, I've had so many wonderful experiences with people whose work I've enjoyed over the years, movies that I've watched over and over and over again. And I just want to share uh, personally with you that one of my favorite moments doing Monster Kid Radio over the years is when I met you at the convention here in Portland. uh, In in, in person for the first time, finally. And I I got to be there when you, from Jackie, from one of my favorite low-budget monster movies, I guess horror movies, interacted with Julie Adams, my, my 50s girlfriend, my, my 50- oh, <laughs> woman that I adore. Oh, you got to be
5: there when I talked to her?
0: Yeah, yeah. I got to see oh. you speak with her and have her sign your program from the play that you guys had done
5: Fine.
0: years ago. Years ago. And that was just a thrill to be able to see that and, and to be part of that. That was just a special moment for me. What was the name of the play? I, I forget the name of the play that you guys did That together. was uh,
5: The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. And right. Our director at the Festival Theater in El Paso was friends with her, and he flew her out as a special guest to be in that play. And my dad played the lead of um, Lowther. And uh, I got to be one of the schoolgirls. It was the one and only play that my dad and I got to do on stage together. And Julie Adams was part of it. I had the program. I still had the program from, I think it was 1971. And, uh, I, I was able to find it when I saw Julie Adams was going to be at living dead and I brought it. And so we talked, I told her that, that I had mentioned her in my book and, I bought a copy of her book. She said she mentioned that play in her book. So, so we're in each other's books in a sense.
0: What a crazy connection. Manos and the lead from Creature from the Black Lagoon. What a, what a crazy world.
5: And she's still so beautiful. <laughs> oh,
0: she's gorgeous. She's amazing. I, I call her my 50s girlfriend. It's probably inappropriate, but I'm in love with that woman.
5: Oh, and, and I have to tell you, last year I was a special guest at uh, Crypticon in Seattle And uh, Elvira was there looking fabulous at 64. And I went up to her. I told her who I was and she stopped the line and made me squat down and talk to her for a few minutes. And she told me that Manos was her favorite and always been her favorite bad movie. And she started asking me all these questions about John Reynolds and my dad. And and then uh, I gave her a copy of my book and she gave me a, a photograph of herself signed.
6: <laughs> wow. We,
5: tra- we traded swag. You know? <laughs> and then I walked away with my, you know, with a smile on my face, like trying to be cool till I got around the corner. I just about melted. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Oh <laughs> man. She, she-, said, she said, say hi to your dad.
0: <laughs> myself, I will. Uh, she's pretty amazing too. I've run into her in a couple that- of times. And she's just amazing.
5: Just an incredible person, Mm -hmm. just Peterson, just a
0: beautiful human. Mm. Well, since we're talking about conventions, I want to kind of go back around and give you a chance again to mention you're going to be in Tacoma.
5: Yeah, I'll be at uh, the Blue Mouse Theater for a double feature of uh, Manos, The Hands of Fate, the restoration version, and Rocky Horror Picture Show, December 10th at 10 p.m.
0: So I'll make sure that we talk about that in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. And I'll mention, I'm sure you'll mention it, but I'll mention it on Facebook as well. Get, get as many Monster Kids up there to check that out and support monos and support you and what you're doing.
5: I need to do a little updating, but it's pretty current, is my website, debbiesmonos.com Okay. And so everything, people can connect with me through there, through Facebook. I'm really accessible you know, I want people to reach out. If if they have a place that I can come for a, a venue or an event, I'm open.
0: Well, I know we have listeners all over. So, listeners, if you have anything that that you would love to invite Jackie to, reach out to her. She's on Facebook. She's friendly. She's great. You'll have a great time getting her out to your event up here in Portland where I'm at. I'd love to have. You know, I would love to see you come out, come down here, and do some things. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be in touch, I'm sure.
5: <laughs> yes, absolutely.
0: I want to thank you again so much for being part of Monster Kid Radio. So I'm going to say legacy because you've been on the show a couple of times now, and <laughs> and, and I just appreciate your support of what I'm doing. I, I hope that I can continue to support what you're doing, and let's have you back on the show, but not wait like two years to do it again next time.
5: That would be great. Okay. I
0: think,
5: you know, things are speeding up, so we'll have a lot more to. You know, have more things to talk about in the not too distant future.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Pun intended.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that was good.
0: Huge thanks to Jackie for taking the time to record with us here on Monster Kid Radio, for being part of the show, for being part of the Monster Kid Radio family. I loved having her on the show in the past. I loved having her on the show this time around as well. Head out to monosreturns.com to keep up to date on all things, well, Monos Returns. You can also go to debbiesmonos.blogspot.com to read her blog and just kind of keep up with Jackie that way as well. Of course, as things develop with Monos Returns, we'll talk about it here on the show. And I have reached out via Facebook to the director of Models Returns, Tanya Atomic, and the director of photography, John Sherlock, about doing some interviews in the future as well. So that might happen on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. You're just going to have to stay tuned to find out again. Thanks, Jackie.
1: I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors.
5: Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos: The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game.
1: My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster-versus-monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and Scheming Badmen, and that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your
5: email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link.
7: I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please, come again, and remember... The chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
3: Egypt, 4,000 years ago. A land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The mummy, the living dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak, until one night he attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. He was condemned to guard forever the princess he had loved, and protect her from intruders.
8: Go now. Go and destroy those who desecrated the tomb of our princess. He
2: who robs the graves of Egypt dies. He who robs the graves of Egypt dies.
3: eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket. The Mummy. Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman? You'll know. You'll see. You'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. Ah! There's nothing on Earth like the mummy.
8: You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He's going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself.
6: Hello,
1: this is Raider Director Christopher R. Mim, the master of the Mimiverse. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio with Derek M. Cook. The greatest person I've ever met, sure. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you can leave that out. So you just heard Jackie and I talking about monos the Hands of Fate, 50 years of monos, And while I am set to talk with Steve and D. Sullivan about something else in this episode of Monster Kid Radio, we just started rapping about monos. It happens when you get a couple of Monster Kids who enjoy what some people might think is a questionable film. We just right. start talking about things like this. So Steve says, why don't you hit record? I think that's a great idea. Steve Quickly, out of the way, welcome to Monster Kid Radio, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about Manos.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about Manos. I love Manos. You know, maybe at first I loved Manos as kind of a, a jokey, goofy, riffy thing. But over time, I've come to unironically like Manos. I unironically like Manos, The Hands of Fate. I realize it's not a great film by any measure of film. But I really, really enjoy it. I enjoy it so much more than so many movies that it's often lumped with. It's something I can watch with or without riffing, and I am pretty much just as happy without riffing as with. I suppose that's not really surprising since I've now written two adaptations of Manos, the comedy one that won <laughs> for Best Novelization last year among all tie-in works, which included Batman and Star Wars stuff.
0: Which is awesome. Awesome. I beat
1: those with Manos. Can you, can you believe that?
0: <laughs> Manos beats Batman. You hear that?
1: And Star Wars. Wow. (laughs) You know, having done that, and now having done a serious, what would Manos be like if you made it into a really good horror movie? Having done two adaptations, it's probably not really surprising that I've come to love the source material, but I do. I love the source material.
0: I have to credit... Another listener of Monster Kid Radio, and somebody who's been on the show before, uh, Michael Legge, a.k.a. Dr. Direct, the horror host. If you go back and listen to older episodes of Monster Kid Radio, sometimes I'll say something along the lines of, I love this movie even though it's terrible. I know it's terrible, but I love it. And he gently called me out on that. You know, there's not a terrible movie if you enjoy it. So I'm not going to say Manos is a bad film. I do recognize the warts, the seams, the... (laughs) I think you and I were just... The
1: deficiencies.
0: The deficiencies. And like I said before we started recording, the intentions outweighed the capabilities of the filmmakers and and all those involved. But I enjoy this movie. It makes me smile. It makes me have a good time. I love this film, and I have watched it more than I've watched it rift. I intentionally watch it more than I watch it rift because I recognize, I don't know, this this spirit, this guerrilla filmmaking spirit, the DIY-ness of it. Right. There's just something about it that I respond to.
1: These were people that were reaching for something that exceeded their grasp, but they tried. And they tried really hard. It's really obvious that the wonderful, late Tom Naaman was really putting a lot of feeling and a lot of work and a lot of love into this. You can see it in the way he portrays his character. You can see it in the painting and the sculptures he did and all the stuff that he contributed to the film. And the same goes for John Reynolds, who portrayed Torgo. I Maybe have mentioned this anecdote before, but when I was working on Manos, one of the many times I was watching it, I had it up on the television set in the background while I was working, and my wife was sitting on the couch. I turned to my wife, and I said, John Reynolds, bad actor or rogue genius? And my wife said, unironically, she said, I'm leaning toward rogue genius, because He's out there. Yeah, maybe he's high or whatever, but he's given a performance that people remember and that people like and maybe in some ways even identify with. You know, Torgo is a character that's kind of over his head but trying really hard in his own little twisted way. Torgo's endearing, and the Master's endearing, and the Margaret is endearing, and Debbie and even Hal... You know, in some ways, Hal Warren gets picked on for this. Hal made a frickin' movie, and he tried. He had basic film equipment that was used in the Vietnam War, a, a silent camera that could only shoot as long as it was wound up. But he, given that, he put together a movie that, at this point, millions of people have enjoyed, either ironically or unironically. And I can enjoy it both ways.
0: When I do watch it rift, I mean, I I laugh, you know, and I've mentioned this in the past as well. I kind of go back and forth on the MST3K riffing thing. That said, it's undeniable that without MST3K and the phenomenon, I guess, of riffing right. movies the way that it is, it is now with other groups doing it with riff tracks and, and the other groups that have been involved well, with MST3K coming back. I mean, it's undeniable that without things like this, we wouldn't be talking about Monos the way that we are now. I mean, they did put it back on the map or put it on the map in the first place.
1: If Frank Conniff hadn't dug it up out of whatever box the distributor had sent them of movies they might riff... If he hadn't somehow found that, looked at it, and said, Oh, this is going to be a good one, we wouldn't have seen it. It's entirely possible Mm -hmm. we could have spent our entire lives without seeing Manos. I wouldn't have written two novelizations. I wouldn't have won a major award. A major award, as Darren McCaffrey would
0: say,
1: (laughs) without that circumstance.
0: You're talking about, you know, John Reynolds, and, you know, everybody that was involved in this, and after talking to Jackie a little bit, and listeners heard this, so many of the people involved in this film were stage actors or just didn't have the film experience. You right. can tell, yeah, they're kind of stagey, but in a good way. You mentioned the master, Tom Naiman, who I think is one of the cornerstones of this film. Right. His performance is so, I'm going to make sure everybody in the back row can hear me. It works though in, in the context of the film because he's this guy that's, you know, worshipping Manos. He's the master. And you mentioned John Reynolds and Torgo. His life, I think what happened with him and how his life ended is just terrible. Just terrible. And from what I understand, he had a pretty tough time of it with his father growing up. And his father was more of a, you know, you're going to go to the military school, that sort of thing. But I, I get that, and it's tough. But he managed to put all of this, this pathos and these connections into this character. Right. I, I love Torgo. I would yeah. put Torgo up there in the ranks of... Creepy little hunchback assistants, you know, or Igor or Fritz, you know, or any of them. Torgo's right, right up yeah. there with me, you know. Or, or Igor
1: not be, really being an assistant, but being right. Uh, being, but, taking but, that theme in popular culture,
0: or or the uh, the character in the screaming skull. Uh, I'm blanking on his name, but yeah, that that caretaker assistant type guy. I love him. Yeah. I, I love watching. No,
1: absolutely. Torgo is right there. It's funny and if you start looking at it unironically for a while, you start to kind of appreciate other facets of it, too. You appreciate the sheriff, and we know they're all dubbed, but he was one of the people that got to dub himself. His line readings, and and the the teenagers in the car. When I was writing the serious, scary version of Manos, Joyce, who is the the girl in the car, played, in my adaptation, the, the characters that didn't have names in the screenplay got names based on who their actresses and actors were. So Joyce is Joyce Moliere, I became really, really fond of that character thinking about who she was and how she ended up in that car and why she was there and that kind of stuff and all that that I got to put in into it. And in some ways, that process makes you realize that these were real people that were really out there putting an effort in. We know in real life that Joyce was in that car because she had been scheduled to be one of the wives and wanted to be. One of the wives. Most of the people playing the wives were from a modeling agency and weren't so hot on it, which is why they've got these kind of wonderful diaphanous costumes that uh, Jackie's mom made for them that then they are wearing the granny underwear beneath because they really weren't actors and actresses that were committed to that role they were people that were kind of hired and like well i'm not gonna be semi-nude under this costume even though that probably would have in some ways helped the film but but joyce was a person that really she wanted to be there and hal god love him with a broken leg she couldn't do that but hal made up a part for her to be in the film the same with Bernie, who was one of Hal's good friends and was the stuntman. He's probably the guy you see rolling down the hill when Hal gets hit from behind and that kind of stuff. So if he found a way to put these people that cared about the film in the film, even if later they maybe snickered at it or weren't really proud of it. You know that the people that they were really trying, they were trying hard. And as such, I appreciate this film a lot more than kind of the modern wink and nudge, you know, we're doing a goofy movie thing, which is part of the problem I have with a lot of modern retro films is that they're making fun of the films rather than having a loving tribute to them. You and I have talked many times about the films of Christopher Mim, which are loving tributes to the films of the time. And if there's comedy that rises out of that. It's an, it's an honest comedy. It's not a hey, I'm making fun of this, weren't we all stupid in the 50s and 60s kind of thing.
0: He walks a very fine line that I, man, I don't know how he pulls it off. The balancing act because you're right, he does pay homage to those films and he is referencing these movies he still is able to put in these little points, these counterpoints of humor. And yeah, wasn't it ridiculous that men treated women this way with the General Castle character? You know, he's so over the top. Right. You know, he's, he, he doesn't like women. And he makes it clear every time he turns up on screen, you know, look, look, doll, you know, the way he talks. Right. But it's not a parody. And I, I think right. maybe that's, that's the balancing right. exactly. act that I really appreciate with men. That's
1: because Christopher and, and some of these others are making it in the same spirit as the originals were made in they're not trying to parody the originals it's they're not a spoof it's not. Mm-hmm. and manos was obviously made in that spirit originally they were trying they were trying really hard maybe they fell short certainly they fell short but damn they tried they tried hard and they give us something that we will remember for the rest of our lives I would remember Manos for the rest of my life, even if I hadn't written two books about it, even if I hadn't won an award. There was some point at which it, it got beyond being the Rift movie and into a movie that I was, I was intrigued by. I was intrigued by the people behind it. And, you know, certainly meeting Jackie and spending, spending some time with her, both online and more recently in person. That only adds to it. It's like these were real people. They were trying hard. Maybe they didn't make Citizen Kane. But they made a movie that just this year, just a month ago, was voted the most popular Mystery Science Theater episode of all time by over, I think it's over 10,000 fans. Wow. Yeah. There's something there.
0: You and I are both friends with Chris Mim. I'm wondering if he would be tickled that we just compared his movies to Mono's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I guess when this episode comes out, we'll find out. <laughs>
0: And here we are again. We're laughing, but we're not laughing at the movie. It, it brings us joy to think about and talk about these movies. And there's nothing wrong with just enjoying the movie as a as riff material. There's nothing okay, wrong with nothing that. Nothing wrong right? with that at all. You know, if it makes you smile and it gives you a good time and you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 minutes of just bliss, then go right. for it, man. You know, Enjoy it, the it's movie. certainly
1: funny in the old B-movie cast days, whenever Manos was mentioned, Vince would play the theme. <laughs> Even though it's a podcast, you can hear Nick Brown rolling his eyes. (laughs) Oh, Manos! Yeah, you know, but I don't do that anymore. When Manos comes on, when I happen to stumble across it again on Mystery Science was just rerunning here on Comet TV the other night, I didn't roll my eyes. I smiled. I was like, "Awesome, Manos is on." I know what's going to be on in the background while I work right now.
0: Awesome, Manos is on. That's <laughs> something I don't think anybody, you know, really expected to hear.
1: Right. Well, and that's why we decided we'd, we'd better put this down on tape for the record, or actually digitally for the record,
0: because who would
1: who would believe we had this conversation if we didn't actually share it with anybody?
0: Yeah. Exactly. So, exactly.
1: Manos, we love it. Uh, Worth watching, I- even without the riffs.
0: There you go. Here's your spoiler warning. Steve and I are going to talk about The Mummy for the next 49 minutes, starting now. So let's go from Manos, low budget, using the, the barest of equipment, whatever they can get their hands on, to a big budget, lots of money.
6: <laughs> right. <laughs> Monster
0: movie. Yeah, coming out next year, 2017. It's finally happening. The Universal unite that's my phrase i keep using it but it hasn't cut on yet the universal united shared universe starting with the tom cruise film the mummy
1: we think we thought that with dracula untold too. well
0: okay so yeah here's here's what i've got now Steve and I don't have any inside knowledge. We haven't talked to anybody involved in the project. We are just like you listeners in that we saw the teaser. A few days later, we saw the trailer. And then I spent some time doing some digging to try to find some more material online, found a little bit. There's a short making of or behind-the-scenes clip on YouTube that has a little bit more in it, but not much. Right. Um,
1: And there's an interview with the director, too.
0: Yeah, he's in that. And I did read a written interview with him online where he was flat-out asked, what about Dracula Untold? Because Dracula Untold, when it was being done, it wasn't necessarily considered part of this thing. And then they got into the production and post and, well, maybe it will be. And then they added that stinger at the end of that film. And, you know, is it or is it not? And Alex finally came out and said, no. Okay, Dracula Untold I that. is non-canonical. It is not part of this thing that we're doing. As far as we're concerned, as far as Universal is concerned, the Mummy is the start of this franchise. I'm
1: I'm down with that. I had um, I had issues with. I enjoyed Dracula Untold, but I had issues with it. I'll talk about it a little when we're talking about it, the Mummy because I do have at least one similar concern to the mm-hmm. to the, the new Mummy and what we're seeing in the preview.
0: You know, my wife Brenda and I talked about Dracula Untold on the show a while back, and at the time it was kind of unclear, was it going to be the launch or not? And with that ending, I thought, well, there's your, there's your hook. Right. I also had a lot of problems with it. I, I enjoyed parts of it. I, I love the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramin Djawadi is the composer, and I'm actually oh, Ramin Djawadi
1: ra- is one of the oh. two, quote-unquote, new composers that I think is really, really good. And The <laughs> he, other, the other he, one is Michael Giacchino.
0: I actually prefer, you know, if, if I had to rank the two, I'd put Ramin right there. Ramin is at the top of my list of modern composers that i listen to on a regular basis even if the movie wasn't something that stuck with me dracula untold the fright night remake his score from game of thrones his amazing score from the just now wrapped up season one of hbo's westworld which was an amazing series, oh, yeah, great series. Uh, that music and the way he used other pieces of music like black hole sun right. and all this other stuff and worked it into the score beautiful amazing work i think I he did some work on done that to tell you yeah I was so it's, wrapped
1: up in the rest of Westworld that I forgot yeah. I was working on.
0: Brendan and I are going to talk about Westworld on Upcoming Married with Monsters. Oh, cool. I'll, I'll table that. But his music is amazing. And, and even some of the TV – didn't he do Person of Interest for a few years? I don't know if he did it the entire time. Anyway, Ramin's work is beautiful.
1: Yeah, no, he did at a, a least maybe all of the seasons of Person of Interest, I think.
0: It's great stuff. Yeah, it really is, is gorgeous music. It's series
1: and more science fiction than probably most people know.
0: You know, that said – it's not like I go back and watch *Dracula Untold*. I listen to the score quite a bit, and I, I actually prefer his *Fright Night* score above pretty much everything yeah, else uh, that, that, that I've heard that recently.
1: Remake, so I'll um, check it out.
0: It's not terrible. It's not the original, of course, right. but the music sticks with me. The music is beautiful. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, great modern monster matchup music. Mm-hmm. It's great, but yeah. So the mummy, it's it's the starting point, point. and I'm encouraged because I read this interview with Alex Kurtzman, mm-hmm. and he says. All the right things. He appears to be approaching this, and he didn't say this in the interview. The interviewer actually made this comment. He seems to be approaching this universal thing the way Marvel did their shared universes versus what DC is doing now. Make one movie at a time. Focus on that movie. Make sure each movie has its own identity. And if it all matches up, awesome. As opposed to, let's put it all in Blender and go for it full bore 100% like DC is doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I appreciate that. So the focus seems to be, let's make The Mummy a good movie first. There's a couple of tags here and there that we can branch off of if we're going to do more down the line. But let's focus on this, which I do appreciate.
1: Every pearl on a necklace has to be a pearl. Mm-hmm. And that's you know something that Marvel has done in a way that I think is just – it's kind of
0: astonishing. It really is. And the analogies that I'm finding here about the ideas about what might happen next – even though the mummy seems to be this big world-threatening thing,
1: right? And that's actually my one of my big concerns about it. Which, it's
0: like, where do you go from there?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: I was concerned about that too until I saw somebody point out, well, you know, Marvel already did that. You had these world-threatening things, and then you had Ant Man, right? And it still works,
1: right? And well, and that's one of the things that was really honestly surprising about Marvel was that they were able to go from these huge you know, Avengers style, we're battling Hitler and Captain America things down to the level of Ant Man or even Guardians of the Galaxy, where suddenly mm-hmm. we're focusing on you know, even though Guardians is a cosmic tale, we're focusing on kind of a much smaller cast and crew and mm-hmm. and people I mean,
0: so that, far removed. Yeah, yeah,
1: people that aren't Captain America. People that aren't people that you know anything about. I mean Guardians of the Galaxy was not a top-shelf book before the movie came out. It wasn't no. even close. Most of us that have been with Marvel for 50 years or whatever were like, what the hell are they doing with this? That doesn't make seem to make a lot of sense, but they pulled it off. They And I've Unvalently always did. loved Ant-Man.
0: Yeah. Oh, Ant Man is one of my favorites of the Marvel Universe movies. Right. It really is. Yeah. It's a heist story. It's a small heist story. Right. And I don't mean small as in these. Right. Yeah. Movie, but, yeah. but I mean, it's it's a smaller, more intimate tale that exists in a world in which Loki's trying to destroy the world multiple times. Right. It, it's fine, you know, <laughs> and it works and it fits and it all blends. And if that's the approach that they're going to take with these movies, I'm okay with that too.
1: Yeah. The only thing that I, I think a drawback to Ant Man is it may have prevented. DC from actually giving the atom his actual atom powers and the kind of stuff they used to do and instead he's kind of an amalgam of Iron Man and Ant-Man, which is unfortunate, but that's not Marvel's fault that DC is not trusting who their heroes are. Marvel Mm -hmm. said we've got a guy who can shrink down to the size of an ant and control ants and we're going to take that really seriously we don't need to give him powers that he never had in the comics we're just going to go with it, and they made it work Mm -hmm. so, clearly if Marvel can do that other movie companies should be able to shift focus in size from something world-spanning like The Mummy to something that I can't imagine would not be more intimate like The Creatures from the Black Lagoon.
0: Man, That kind of sticks with me, what you just said. DC doesn't seem to trust their own characters. Marvel seems to. And I'm wondering if that's really the key here. And again, that's the vibe that I'm getting out of these interviews I'm reading with Alex Kurtzman, is that they're trusting The Mummy to be the mummy, versus, you know, a piece of, of the franchise puzzle, you know? And and that's a really interesting way to look at what DC and Marvel's doing, you know, trusting the characters or not. I think Universal has the potential. Yeah. I mean, they, they got the right people involved, I, I, I think. Alex Kurtzman, even though he was the third choice for the director slot, he seems to be a fan.
1: right And clearly the idea of doing a, a monster rally in – uh, a modern, well, not necessarily even a modern setting, but it, doing a monster rally in 2016, 2017, that seems to be something a lot of us are interested in. And obviously, I'm, I'm writing one right now with Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, CushingHorrors.com, which has just launched. And the people that I know are really excited about that. I've been running this on Patreon, and there are people that have been waiting on my Patreon that signed up for the Patreon, just waiting for this to happen. There's at least in the the fanish community in in the Monster Kid community, there is a yearning for that kind of a a series of movies that you know you look at the mummy and you look at the Frankenstein monster and you look at the creature and then you you team them all up and have them fight or something, the way say Marvel has done in Civil War, which was awesome. So clearly there's a hunger there, and it's a matter of how well you do it and how well you integrate it, and. The people talking about it, Tom Cruise talking about it, the director talking about it, they seem to have the right attitude. They seem to want to do the right thing. Now, as the the cautionary other side of that, I am one of those people that's got the Land of the Lost on DVD. Yeah, sorry.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because you mentioned it on Facebook, and I wanted to ask you what you meant by that. Please, please. I
1: love the Land of the Lost, the original television series with the animated dinosaurs and uh, written by by some really great science fiction writers and stuff like David Gerald, who was I think the the story director for the first year or something like that. I, I like the original, and I'm a dinosaur junkie. So when Land of Lost came out, I don't think I saw it in the theater. Maybe I did. I have blocked it out, but I I picked up the DVD in any case because hey, hello dinosaurs. <laughs> You know, and you could always turn up the Will Ferrell voice and watch the dinosaurs. I think most people would agree that the Land of the Lost movie is a train wreck. It's not funny. It's like the Green Hornet movie. The people seemed to think this was a good idea to do it, but then didn't execute it. But the weird thing, and this shows what a masochist I am, is that after having watched this and thought, Jesus, this wasn't very good... I thought to myself, what the hell were they thinking? Oh, look, there's a director's commentary on Land of the Lost. Oh, no. I put it on and I listened to the director's commentary, the whole thing, beginning to end. And the people working on that loved the original show. It was really clear from what they were talking about and the way they were talking about it. So listening to them, they said all the right things. And then somehow... Despite all that, they made a terrible film. (laughs) But hearing them talk about the original series, they loved the original series. It's clear that they loved the original series, that they knew the original series. But then somehow, they didn't make the transition. Like with The Green Hornet, the filmmakers or the producers or someone somewhere decided – well, you can't just play this straight. No one will take this seriously. And that's their mistake. Now, I don't hmm. think The Mummy is going to suffer from that mistake. Clearly, from the trailer, it's not going to be a camp parody of The Mummy. It's not, no. it doesn't even look as camp as the Stephen Summers Mummies series, which I really like the first one of. And I actually like the third one that I, he didn't direct as well, too. The second one, not so much. But it, the trailer is the short trailer or the long trailer. And the stuff they're saying, I, they're not going camp. So I have more hope on that front.
0: So the Steven Summers mummy movies. And let's not forget, he was also the man behind the Van Helsing film. Right. Just much, you know, I'm not going to trash the movie. Anyway, um, <laughs> there, the Van Helsing film has some good music. Alan Silvestri, great score.
1: There's lots of cool stuff in the Van Helsing movie. And mm-hmm. they just blew it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, If you look at yeah. all the
1: individual pieces of Van Helsing, all the individual pieces are pretty cool.
0: Yeah, the pieces are wonderful. It's just they didn't put the puzzle together right. Right, exactly. You know, they just tried to mash things. But anyway, exactly. I know Stephen Summers is a fan. I remember when Van Helsing came out and the DVD and the movie – was a DVD or Blu-ray at that point? It doesn't matter. I picked it up. I watched it. And I watched the behind-the-scenes. I watched the interview with Steven Summers, and he's talking about loving these monster rallies right. as a kid and these monster movies that he used to watch with his dad, and that's why he wanted to do The Mummy, and that's why he wanted to do Van Helsing. So his heart was in the right place, too. Right, exactly. So as much as I appreciate that Alex Kurtzman wants to do this for what sounds like the right reasons i have a quote here i'm going to read this a little bit to you all right so alex kurtzman says i love monster movies and there was sort of a defining moment for me when i was a kid and it was when i saw frankenstein and i was very young when i saw frankenstein and i saw the scene where frankenstein makes friends with a little girl and they share the flower and she throws it into the water and he thinks that's just how they're playing so he picks her up and throws her into the water and she drowns And as a kid It was like a deeply emotional and very confusing experience because I felt huge empathy for this monster, and I was scared for him. And on the turn of a dime, he kills this girl, not because he was trying to, but because he just didn't understand how to communicate with her. He gets that. Right. He gets it.
1: Are you going to describe the trailer? Are you going to play the trailer?
0: So when it comes to uh, rights, (laughs) copyright and public domain (laughs) stuff, the older trailers are typically mostly all in the public domain. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But these days, modern movie trailers typically are not. So I'm not going to play the trailer, but I am going to put a link in the show notes. It's all over YouTube. It's all over Facebook. Listeners can find it. What we see in the trailer are a bunch of pieces that could be interesting. I even got a vibe from the Monster Squad in this thing. I mean, there's a lot of things happening in this trailer that, again, the pieces are there. But is it going to be an exercise in excess?
1: Right. Right, and that, and that's actually the thing that worries me, is that it may end up being an exercise in excess. And it's a fine line to draw. Just talking a little bit about the trailer, it's set up with a long opening scene. It seems almost to be a complete scene from the movie. We know it's not. It's going to be longer. In which the casket of the mummy is being transported on a plane that then runs into some supernatural looking problems, the plane is kind of blowing up, the plane is going down Tom Cruise is struggling, bouncing around inside the plane in scenes that we know that they actually shot in what they call the Vomit Comet, which is a plane that simulates zero gravity, so as this plane is diving in the movie, that was actually happening in real life and points to them for doing that live and not on the green screen he saves someone's life from the plane he's apparently killed and wakes up in the morgue maybe It's hard to tell because of the way he's cutting. And then we, after that long scene, we get a series of shorter scenes of the mummy and the museum. I guess a museum director who's Russell Crowe, and things that are happening with the mummy. There's a scene underwater where he's looking at a sunken city or some kind of ruins. There's a lot of, of course, running, which (laughs) a lot of people make fun of Tom Cruise for the running.
0: Well, and he acknowledges it, yeah he he knows <laughs> it's his thing, <laughs> and there 's you know, a he... lot of
1: things blowing up, and yep. there 's you know just a lot of kind of crazy chaos happening in in the trailers, and a very creepy looking female mummy who maybe has twice the eyeballs that most of us have.
0: What is up with that shot i don 't understand that
1: it 's very creepy it 's like her it p- is she has one set of eyes but two sets of pupils in it.
0: It's cre- Yeah, it's creepy. It's an image, but...
1: Yeah, who knows what's really happening? I mean, a lot of times they select trailer images just for the, the creepiness or the, you know, the coolness or whatever, so...
0: Or what shot happened to be done. I mean, yeah, <laughs> what... they can get out of the computer, guys, on time. For yeah. all
1: we know, you know, she's splitting into two people there, or she's, you know, summoning some kind of a spirit inside. We don't know. We don't... Right. We can only look at this stuff and try to put it together in our heads so we can tell that the story is at least partly set in London. We know it starts out in the desert. We're going to assume it's Egypt somewhere. Uh, Who knows where the underwater thing is, whether it's off the coast of Egypt where they actually have underwater ruins or if it's somehow in the mummy's tomb, which the mummy's tomb seems to have a big leering face carved into the wall that they seem to be airlifting the coffin out of. So, there's kind of a lot of pieces to look at. And the question is, Will any of those go too far?
0: We don't know uh, the order of the events even. So this whole bit with Tom Cruise waking up in the morgue out of a body bag, right. is that after the plane crash? Is that before the plane crash? Right. Is that the post-credit stinger at the end to introduce a Frankenstein type? Who knows? You know, wh- Where does that seem come into play? When does all this happen? I-, I also want to talk about the tomb or the sarcophagus. Yes. So some comments that were made online say that it doesn't look very mummy-like looks more like a gill man.
1: I don't agree with that. Okay. It's a very stylized sarcophagus. It looks different than any Egyptian sarcophagus that I've ever seen. Thinking about it right now, it actually kind of looks like a sarcophagus designed by H.R. Giger, who designed The Alien.
0: Okay, okay.
1: I think that they're going for a – this is a creepy – sarcophagus. There's kind of a Medusa element almost to the head too and it has an open screaming mouth which seems to be part of the motif from the tomb that we see on what I'm guessing is the wall in one of the other shots. So, yeah, I can see how people would think it looks a little scaly. It looks a little bit like I Married a Monster from Outer Space too, in terms <laughs> of the design elements.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But I'm not thinking that that's a connection to the Gilman. No, I don't think so either. I'm thinking that's a connection to the fact that this is a dark cult of a forgotten pharaoh, because that's one of the things that uh, probably a lot of us are thinking about. I mean, that's one of the things I'm using in Cushing Horrors is the dark cult of the forgotten pharaoh that happens to be these mummies are from that forgotten period of time. And I think the sarcophagus is perhaps their way of visually suggesting that this is not normal that this is not King Tut's mask, that this is maybe someone that should be forgotten and never uncovered.
0: Yeah, I I don't see a Gilman thing. As much as I love to see the Gilman in everything, uh, (laughs) I don't see it here. There is a connection in this film to another franchise, and I don't think – well, there's going to be a massive spoiler warning on here. Russell Crowe plays Dr. Jekyll.
1: Oh, really? I didn't know that.
0: Now, I've been reading interviews, and like I said, I've done a little bit of digging here, and the impression that I'm getting is that Dr. Jekyll's being brought in as the monster expert. That, you know, he runs this organization or this place called the Prodigium, and he's the one that's able to share the monster knowledge with Tom Cruise, who's new to this world of gods and monsters, which we'll get to in a second. Right. Uh, that he's kind of the guy, the, 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 uh, the Obi Wan, the Merlin.
1: I had wondered about this looking at the trailer, and I thought, and thinking about. Um, how they were going to connect these movies that they were most likely going to give us an organization like the save from the original chill role playing game, which has parallels to the, I don't think there's a name for it, the organization that's in the, the call of Cthulhu role playing game, which I guess there were precedents before those games for monster hunter societies in probably in pulp literature, but those two games are the ones that I think really brought out the idea that that there would be societies that you could turn to on an ongoing basis for. Well, what do you know about mummies now? Kind of the way that uh, in the mm-hmm. Banachek series, Banachek would go into that bookstore in Boston and talk to his friend Felix and get all the esoteric knowledge he needed. <laughs> <laughs> to solve the case.
0: And I love me a good monster hunter story. I mean, the idea of a monster hunting society or organization thrills me.
1: Yeah, it's very, you know, it's that, very strong.
0: I love that. If you don't take love,
1: it too far.
0: Right, right. But even going back to something like the movie The Return of Dracula, it's clear there's a group of people that have been tracking Dracula across continents. Right. I love that. To make Dr. Jekyll the point man for this, to make him basically the Nick Fury of this, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like I, I, Russell Crowe a lot for certain things.
1: Yeah, he's done a lot of good work. And we
0: do get to see him and Tom Cruise beat each other up, so I'm excited by that. Yeah,
1: that ought to be fun. To be fun.
0: <laughs> we,
1: I suppose we, we should talk about the, the gorilla in the room that a lot of people are really concerned about, and that is Tom Cruise. I am not one of those people. Okay, I, um, I know there yeah. are a lot of people that don't like Tom. I think most of that dislike is actually from his off-screen life rather than his on-screen work. I could be wrong about that, but I think the fact that you know that he's a Scientologist and he's the you know since John Travolta is kind of on the skids again right now, he is the probably the preeminent face of Scientology, which we won't get into really seriously, but generally I don't think it's a good thing. <laughs> But everyone's entitled to their own kooky religion, even if the rest of us think it's kooky, right up until the point that that their kooky religion impacts your actual life. So I think the problem people have with Tom is based more on that than on his work. Because, again, speaking personally, I'm not sure I've ever seen a Tom Cruise movie that I haven't enjoyed. My wife was like, cocktail. I was like, well, I haven't seen that one. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you look at his oeuvre of films you you know you look at even Top Gun which I think is silly to Rain Man to the Mission Impossible films which I think are aside from the first one which I have serious problems with I think are are really really entertaining and the the one that Brad Bird did was brilliant and you look at that and you look at the the couple of science fiction films that he did Oblivion and uh Edge of Tomorrow or uh, Live, Die, Repeat, whatever they're actually calling it right now, uh, a couple of years ago. Those were terrific films. I even like Night and Day, which is a comedy with uh, Cameron Diaz. I like that a lot. (laughs) I thought that was a terrific film. That's a film I'll, I'll have on in the background. I think he's hilarious in it. So part of me wonders what it is that people don't like about Tom. And the way you're sighing, I'm thinking... Maybe I might get some clue from letting you talk.
0: Well, here, here's the thing. Okay, I, I The Scientology thing, you, you called Tom because the elephant in the room. I'm going to call Scientology the elephant in the room. There's an amazing series that's running right now with Leah Romani talking about her experiences getting out of the Church of Scientology uh, on A&E right now. Um, HBO did an amazing documentary not too long ago. I think it goes without saying that the Church of Scientology has a bad rap. And
1: a... Possibly a deserved bad rap.
0: And yeah, and I, Tom Cruise is the face for that, so he brings that baggage. Right. And, you know, when you have the public divorce between him and Katie Holmes, or even before that, and he, when he's getting together with Katie Holmes and he freaks out on Oprah's couch, there, there's a certain level of, for lack of a better term, crazy that goes along with that. And that's not to be insulting to Tom Cruise or people who are crazy. It just is. It is.
1: Yeah, but some of that I think, especially that couch incident, I th- Some of that, I think, is how it's played rather than how sure it happened. You know, I mean, I think mm-hmm. when it happened, it it was probably a very spontaneous kind of moment on the show. I, you know, I haven't seen even the clip of it for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. I did see him on Graham Norton, which is a, a pretty funny and good talk show, very recently. And what I noticed noticed about Tom was that. One of the things is that apparently people outside of the United States don't have this same kind of feeling about Tom that a lot of people in our country do. That outside of the United States, he's the biggest star in the world, period. Sure. He was on the, the show with a number of other stars, and they were all – seemed to be like in awe of him. But he didn't seem to buy into that at all. He was – the most interesting and genuine person on Graham's couch that night. When other people were talking about what they were doing, he was fully paying attention to them and fully engaged and was asking them questions about the work they were doing. And seemed, boy, if he wasn't genuinely interested in all that, he sure faked it well. Sure. (laughs) Because just watching him, I thought, this would be a guy. Who'd be fun to have over to your house and and just sit and chat with?
0: He does exude a certain sense of charisma, and I would even say companionship. He does seem like that. As far as his acting goes, ah, uh, okay. I mean, I, I think he's good. I'm not saying he's not.
1: Well, he's a movie star.
0: He's a movie star, and I feel like a lot of times the, the roles kind of blend together. There's
1: a difference between movie stars yeah. and actors. The, yeah, the yeah. There you is go. That actors. Assume another role when they're working. Movie stars generally are playing some variation on themselves. So, for instance, John Wayne was a movie star. When you walk into a John Wayne movie, you're going to generally, unless you're watching The Searchers or something, there are a couple of other things that really show that John could really act. You're seeing John Wayne as whoever it is. But sure. it's the John Wayne that you see.
0: Jack Nicholson does that too. Right. And right, he does now. Th- mm-hmm. Earlier, yeah, now.
1: maybe not so much. You know, Humphrey Bogart is yeah. after he became famous is mostly Bogart in his roles. And that's what people wanted and that's what people see. And unless you look at him in in a lonely place or the Treasure of Sierra Madre or the African Queen. You know, so some people like Bogart could go back and forth, but mostly when you've got a commodity that you know sells, like Bogart or Wayne or Cruise, you want them to be mostly Bogart or Wayne or Cruise. They're not going to surprise you generally. They're a known commodity, and that's one of the reasons that they sell all these tickets. Sure. Although, in Cruise's defense, if you've ever seen him in uh, Rock of Ages, he's hilarious in Rock of Ages as the aging rock star. He's, he actually gives a really terrific performance. I think in that. So it's not like he's incapable of. No,
0: he's not. Yeah. It's just acting. I see him in something like War of the worlds um, minority report, mission impossible, even some of night and day. And I just feel like that's Tom Cruise doing the Tom Cruise thing. And, and that's fine. Right. And I know he's bankable for that. And I know his movies more often than not make a ton of money. <laughs> so, right. Casting well, him in this and getting him involved in this. That's a person that's choice. worked
1: for him and worked yeah. for the studios. And exactly. In some sense, it's rare that the studios are not going to cast him as that character. Even the night and day character, even though it's he's kind of funny and crazy in that, it's still a parody on the Tom Cruise action hero thing that is what he's really known for now. So he's not maybe going to give you a great acting performance all the time, though I think he's
0: capable of it. Again, I'm going to go back to an interview that I read with Alex Kurtzman talking about working with Tom. I said to him, scream in terror. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah. (laughs) And, And that's something when I comment on in the trailer, we see Tom scream in terror. I don't think I've ever seen Tom scream that way in a film. I've seen him run. Right. I've seen him run from explosions and jump and do crazy things.
1: And look serious and worried and all those kind of things. And even even laugh and kind of make fun of himself sometimes.
0: When the plane's going down and he's screaming that way?
1: Yeah. He's
0: screaming. I was impressed. I, I, whether it was ADR, whether it was done, it doesn't matter. The look on his face and the sound that's coming out, that's pretty pretty intense. I mean, he was scared. And because of that, I'm scared for him. Right. I did appreciate that.
1: Cruz is one of those actors that he seems, having watched him on Graham Norton at, at least once and other places as well, occasionally. I don't watch a lot of interview sh- shows, but Tom is, is he's the biggest box office star in the world, right? So he shows up on anything that has an interview, even if it's about cars, he'll show up. <laughs> is that he's, He seems to be an actor that's really willing to put himself out there for the role. A lot of times that's physically Put himself out there, like rappelling down the side of a skyscraper in one Mission Impossible or being strapped to the outside of an airplane in another Mission Impossible or in this one to be bounced around in zero gravity inside a, an airplane that's doing parabolas to simulate weightlessness. But he also seems to be willing, if he's in a project, to do what the director wants him to do. Sure. Whether that's Stanley Kubrick in Eyes Wide Shut. Or Brad Bird in Mission Impossible or this guy in The Mummy. It's like no one ever asked Tom to scream like he was really, really afraid before. But damn once he was asked. He was like, yeah, really? And then he
0: did it. Yeah, and again, uh, more with Alex Kurtz and talking about working with Tom. Apparently he worked with Tom on Mission Impossible 3. And he had a conversation with Tom about this movie in which he said to him, I have 30-plus years of embedded Tom Cruise is going to save the day, in my experience, and my relationship to you as an actor. And the problem is, in a monster movie, the scariest monster movies are the ones where the protagonist starts to feel very out of control. So how am I going to believe that you're really out of control because I know you're going to save the day, you know? And it seems like they really were aware of what Tom brings to a movie like this, and they are at least going to address it, or at least they're saying they're going to address that in this film. So I'm hopeful for that.
1: Right. Just go with this is going to be kind of an action-based monster movie. I think chances are, unless they really screw it up in the edits, it's going to be a pretty darn good action monster movie. I think it's going to be You know, – I'm going to go out on a limb and piss off people here. I think it's going to be better than the Wolfman movie, certainly, which looked really good, and I know a lot of people really like it. But for me, it's just – Uh, morose and boring mess. It lacks all of the charm of the original Wolfman and focused on it wanted to make its character so tortured it didn't get anything else going for it and I didn't care about the characters. I think I'm much more likely to care about this and care about Tom running through the streets of London or the inside of a church or whatever we were seeing in that one clip than I did with the Wolfman bounding CGI-like across the rooftops of London. I think it's going to be better than Dracula Untold, because I think they have a better (laughs) idea of what they want to do. No Uh, fist of bats? What?
0: No fist of bats? (laughs) There will be
1: no fist of bats. I, I managed to get this far without mentioning that serious problem, although that is one of my concerns, as I said, is that they're going to make the mummy too powerful to then use her again in another film, because like Dracula, once you have the fog of locusts that can destroy all of London, well, how do you challenge that? And I'm not saying there's a fog of locusts in this. There are, There's fog, there are flying things. Uh, I don't know that that's actually going to happen. Right, but who knows? One of the problems is once you make one of these characters super powerful, and that was my concern with making the Dracula film, the center of this new piece, is once you control a Fist of Bats that can destroy a whole army, well, what chance does Van Helsing have against that? It's like, oh, Van Helsing's over there. Fist of Bats, and now he's Van Helsing, pulp, And this faces that potential same problem. But we'll have to see how, how they play it. So much uh- of life is in execution.
0: Yeah, you know,
1: We were talking earlier in the earlier segment about Manos, The Hands of Fate, having some good ideas at the core of it, but despite their best efforts, they blew the execution. You can make a good movie or a good novel out of Manos, The Hands of Fate. You can make a good movie out of Land of the Lost. You can make a good movie out of Dracula Untold or The Mummy, but a lot of it is in how you carry it off and where you put your emphasis and whether you throw in the kitchen sink or you don't throw in the kitchen sink. And there's no way to tell from the trailer how much of the kitchen sink is going to be there because then the trailers, they always want to show you everything that blows up.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, that's the key, right? So the kitchen sink approach, we have the mummy, we have the Dr. Jekyll character, and then what many, many people online are calling a very bold choice invoking that line of dialogue from Bride of Frankenstein. of oh, the Gods and Monsters line. Yeah, what do you think of that? Uh, we'll I, see. I think it is a bold <laughs> choice myself. But, yeah.
1: yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I often think of that as the movie Gods and Monsters rather than the quote from Bride and Frankenstein, but of course the movie title comes from the...
0: Right, which is a great movie, by the way. If people haven't seen Gods and Monsters. People need to see it. Anyway.
1: It's like the... The society that's fighting the monsters could be a good thing, or it could be a crutch that quickly drags everything down to the to a role-playing game, you know, not to make fun of my industry, but that, I, that kind of gave birth to my career to a role-playing game level, what monster are we facing this week? How are we going to defeat it? Uh, what dungeon are we crawling through? It, it could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. It's hard to say. And the same thing with the whole gods and monsters thing. If they want to have kind of a unified theory of how these monsters work, well, that's cool. I mean, you know, speaking personally, I have a unified theory of how the giant monsters work in kaiju Attack. How much of that gets revealed over time is, is uh, kind of up to, you know, how much people want any sequels to those books. But having that as a backstory can be wonderful. It can really help you out of a lot of problems. But if you get too wedded to the society that fights monsters, then instead of a, a monster series or a horror series, it becomes a monster hunter series. And I, I'm i not sure that's what we want.
0: Well, they do have a Van Helsing film in the works for part of this, if this all goes ahead. So, I mean, we are going to have our monster hunter series, probably. Right. Or or, or element, anyway, thrown in there. So there's two more points I wanted to hit on and talk to you about here, uh, just the thought of remakes, and I know it's a very divisive conversation, Hate right? Remakes, remakes are okay because it makes people think of the original. Remakes are bad, remakes are great, you know, whatever. I personally feel like most remakes dilute the shared popular culture that we have with other fans. Yeah. When I was doing the zombie thing, every time I talked about Dawn of the Dead, I had to clarify, it's the original, not the remake, you know, <laughs> zombies don't run, and you know, whatever. The one thing that kind of bugged me online, and, and I'm hoping... That this was all just people trying to be funny online. But I saw it in so many places, I don't know if that's true. So many people seem disappointed that this trailer wasn't like the original one. You know, the one with Brandon Fraser?
1: (laughs) What? I I saw a little bit of that, too. You know, I'm concerned that how much this is going to resemble the Karloff mummy or even the Lon Chaney or Tom Tyler mummy, you know. And people are concerned about whether this is going to be like the Brandon Fraser mummy. Really?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I guess I saw a little echo of that somewhere. It's like, they're going to ruin Brendan Fraser's mummy for me. Oh, you know <laughs> yeah.
0: you like it.
1: It's still out there. I'm not even sure this qualifies as a remake. I think this is a new movie with the same title. And if you think about it that way, that may help or it may hurt. or it may just piss you off because the reason that happens, the reason universal is, Marketing this as a remake is entirely for trademark and legal purposes, I'm sure. Sure. Well, the reason we're getting a movie called The Mummy is because Universal has to keep using that trademark, The Mummy, in order to maintain it. Because if they don't, then they lose it. Which is how the small gaming company that I worked for, PaceSetter, in 1984 to 86, ended up owning the trademark Sandman. Despite the fact that both Marvel and DC had existing characters by that name. And they wrote to us and said, hey, this is our trademark. We said, yeah, not according to the patent trademark office. It's not. You want to keep using it? Talk to us. But then the company went out of business and became irrelevant. So Universal is always going to keep using the names, the mummy, the wolfman, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon in however, whatever context they, they can in order to keep control of that mark. And that's, that's an understandable business reason. And I'd much rather have them doing that than going to Congress and extending the copyright law again, which is basically gutted anything entering the public domain for the last 20 30 years or whatever
0: i've said it before i'm going to say it again i could geek out about copyright stuff for hours it's just fascinating to me i'm going to recommend listeners go to youtube or even go to the website for the tv channel true tv look up the series adam ruins everything he did a bit on copyright that is short it's sweet kind of explains where things are going how things worked and um I mean, it's a little anti-Disney in some spots because Disney's kind of responsible for what's happened with copyright these days. Yeah, Disney but it's a waters. fascinating short; highly recommend it. So go look that up. Uh, they decided to go with the mummy for the start of this whole thing because there hadn't been a mummy movie in almost a decade, big budget-wise, feature-wise, right. like this. There had been some Dracula, there had been some Frankenstein's, so they went with the mummy because it's 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 not as into the culture; it's not been diluted. Right, it's by, not as diluted. Yeah. So you have this starting point. And really, when you look at the original run of the Universal films, The Mummy was right there near the very beginning. What, 32?
1: Uh, yeah, something like that. I so very,
0: very near the beginning.
1: 31, 30, uh,
0: 30, 32. I think it was 32. 31 30. is Dracula and Frankenstein. Yep. You mentioned the Wolfman remake uh, with Del Toro and Hopkins and all the others.
1: Again, a movie with all the right pieces that, for me, just never quite.
0: The Danny Elfman score, the Danny Elfman score for that, that is one of my favorite Danny Elfman pieces. Cool. The music, I'll have to check it out. Oh, it's so good. It is so good.
1: But the movie, for me, doesn't quite hang together. All the pieces are there. I can watch it and enjoy it individually. But when I saw it, I was like, well, I didn't care about anyone in this film. Right.
0: <laughs> and and that's an example of a remake versus what we're talking about here with the mummy, where they are completely going off track. Right. It's not about Karis, it's not about Imhotep. It's about <laughs> right? what somebody online jokingly referred to as a mummy named Emo Tep because of how she looks in the makeup. <laughs> so the mummy uh Sophia Batella is the actress. She was in Star Trek Beyond. Wasn't she in the Kingsman as well?
1: I think she might have been.
0: And I, I don't know anything about her other than uh, she's also a dancer. Right. I think uh, she's the gal
1: with the blade legs in The Kingsman.
0: May, maybe. I'm not sure. If you've seen but
1: the, the Kingsman's a, a hilarious, fun movie. I really, really liked it. So, yeah, I think she was one of the assassins there. But I, I wouldn't swear I, I don't have her IMGb up in front of me right now. Yeah, I,
0: I don't know much about her. I know that she's been getting some big movie roles. Like I said, Star Trek Beyond, she's the, the girl in the white paint. <laughs> she's right. the, the lead she's female awesome. alien. And she looks creepy, and yep. you know I'm, I'm gonna say it. I love mummy movies, and there's something about female mummies. that I'm not gonna call it a fetish, but I will say there's something about <laughs> uh, a competent, attractive woman in bandages that gets me going. So I'm excited to see that.
1: Right? No, you know, no it's no, a purely that's a, male, you
0: know, you know kind of thing. Something that's something in that's,
1: the yeah. mummy, in the mummy uh, pantheon or the the oeuvre that we haven't done a lot of female mummies and so that gives it kind of a new and, and interesting feel to it and I, I'm down with that too because I mm-hmm. I won't say I have a fetish for it either but there's you know and I'm not saying that this character is coming alive but there's a female mummy in, in Dr. Cushing and there's a, a female mummy story in the Frost Harrow series that I had planned for 20 more plus years now and there aren't a lot of movies about female mummies I mean, there are some I mean there's the hammer one blood from the mummy's tomb yeah there's a TV movie from 1973 that was written by Robert Block and a, a number of other people called "The Cat Creature," which features uh, Meredith Baxter, Mer- Meredith Baxter Bernie at one point, but I think just Baxter then, and she just Baxter now, maybe. And uh, David Hedison, Gail Sandegaard. So it's got a good good cast and a screenplay that was uh, written by Robert Block, and it's about a female bummy, basically. Okay. It doesn't have like a the bandage shots and that kind of stuff. but It's a very creepy, kind of cool TV movie. And I think you can see it fully on daily motion. I don't think it's got uh, a DVD or a Blu-ray release. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. At least than last I looked. So, but aside from that, aside from the Valerie Leon movie and the fact that obviously in the, the original, uh, Lon Chaney mummy movies, there was a, a number of those actually feature Anxanamen. So there are female mummies, in a sense, in that. And there's that wonderful scene, is it, in The Mummy's Curse? Where she crawls up out of the swamp, which is one of the great silent scenes in a, in a horror movie where she has been buried uh, in the swamp, and she crawls up and returns to life covered in, in dirt. So there there are some female mummies. But when you say the mummy to a lot of people, they don't think of female mummies. and And honestly, some of the original backlash that I was hearing was that there's a female mummy in this they're ruining my childhood really yeah I, I did hear some of that the uh, same way we, same way we did with Ghostbusters and who knows what else there's
0: no reason why you can't have a female mummy especially uh, and I'm not gonna go there anyway you can have
1: <laughs> female mummies are creepy yes just as creepy and and scary as male mummies at least that's always been my experience with sure. when so I'm, I'm, it doesn't bother me at all.
0: Nope, me neither. I'm excited to see what happens with it. Overall, are you going to see this movie in the theater?
1: Oh, absolutely, Yeah. absolutely. I'll I'll see it the first weekend in the theater unless they dump it in the middle of a vacation or something like that. So
0: yeah, I'll be there. Have they? They haven't talked about a release date. They're just saying 2017, right?
1: Yeah, I think it said. I think they said summer on one of the two trailers. I think that was the tag was summer.
0: <laughs> so and again, this is the IMDb. So I don't know how accurate this is, but supposedly we're looking at a June 9th, 2017 release here, if this is to be believed. Looks like it comes out in France on June 7th, uh, June 8th in a big part of the world, and then June 9th for us.
1: You know, uh, I'm going to be there, and not only am I going to be there in the first couple of days it's out, I'm expecting this is going to be a good film. And, you know, again, I know this is blasphemy to some people. You have to understand, it's going to have a lot of action movie elements, because that's how they're selling movies now nowadays. But I expect this to be a good film, largely because I expect this, Tom Cruise to be in good films.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's not, gonna uh, it's not going to be a horror movie. It's not going to be a horror movie. That's by design. Again, I'm going back to an Alex Kurtzman interview. It wasn't until the eighth grade when I went into a major horror slasher phase that I started understanding the distinction between a monster movie and a horror movie and a slasher movie. Those are three very different things. He's kind of right.
1: Yeah. I was really heartened to, just to hear him say that. <laughs> yeah. Because I I pretty much agree with that.
0: Yeah. I mean when I started Monster Kid Radio, you know, we focused so much on the monster stuff, the monster stuff, and you know, I had to expand it a little bit so like could feel a bit more comfortable talking about a genre film that didn't necessarily have a monster in it. But, right. you know, there is a distinct difference between a monster label versus a horror label, that sort of thing. And I think it's going to be a monster movie. I don't think it's going to be a horror movie. I think it will have some scares.
1: I'm totally fine with it being yeah. a monster movie. I'm totally fine because I'm actually a wheelhouse, man. <laughs> I'm a monster kid. I'm not a horror kid or a slasher kid. I certainly I have a, a great appreciation for horror films, but I'm a monster kid. And if it's a monster movie, I'm good with that. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be fun.
0: So, <laughs> if you are not wanting to wait for Universal Unite to put their monster mashup into action, I know where you can get a monster mashup. I know where you can get a monster rally. Do you? It's with this guy right here, Steve. What's the website?
1: The website is CushingHorrors.com. That is, Cushing isn't Peter Cushing, though he doesn't appear. There is a namesake, and Horrors isn't, ah! Horrors! Tom Cruise is in The Mummy! <laughs> <laughs> I have
0: no idea what just happened.
1: Cushing horrors. <laughs> that was uh, that was my uh, Cruise-hating fanboy voice. Okay. Thing. There you go.
0: Sounded like, a, I don't know, Kermit's uncle. I don't know. Of, was... <laughs>
1: of course, you can always reach me through sdsullivan.com or stephendsullivan.com as well. Gotcha. And if you want to just look at the Manos stuff, you can go to manosfilm.com.
0: I'm surprised that you were able to grab that.
1: I was, too, and I actually even talked to Jackie before I did, because I thought, Oh, Jackie, this is available. Do you want it? She was like, No, nah, go ahead. You take it. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. <laughs> Manosfilm.com.
0: There you go. All right. Well, Steve, thanks for doing this. I know it was a real short notice.
1: Yeah. Um, great pleasure as always, though. I mean, you know, we're for those that are really interested in the behind-the-scenes stuff, at one point, Derek and I were talking about doing half an hour on just the 15-second trailer. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, we've done an hour on a two minute and 33 second trailer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> More mummy for your buck you- <laughs> or, or for free because it's podcast and it's free. There you go. Although you can support Derek at his Patreon. like uh, I, I'm sure you'll slip that address in somewhere.
0: So if you want to be cool like Steve, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you want to be cool like Steve and all the other popular kids. <laughs> popular, mon- the popular Monster Kids. There's something I just made up. Uh,
0: spend, pop- yeah,
1: <laughs> popular Monster Kids like like that ever happens.
0: <laughs> now, listeners, spend your money on Steve's books first. Go go get those; are definitely worth it. Get
1: The books, or do my Patreon, or go. both. You, you know, the Patreon starts at a buck a month. If you throw in two bucks, you get everything a month in advance. So
0: that's a good deal. All right, Steve. Thanks again, man. I'm going to start editing this thing. Uh, We're actually recording Wednesday morning. I want to get this out Wednesday night, Thursday morning. So I got some work to do, man. You do. You're
1: a madman. You're a madman. If only you had some undead sermons to come and do it for you.
0: I got out of the zombie game, man. (laughs) I I got nothing
1: I was thinking mummies, man. I said undead and you went to zombies. I guess you're still in like step six of the 12-step withdrawal (laughs) program.
0: (laughs) You know, I try to come out, and then every once in a while something happens and brings me right back in. I'm like, no!
1: It's <laughs> yeah, so just when I thought I was out. yes, it pulled me right back in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, Steve.
1: Harry, right, Good luck editing, man. Thanks. Great being on the show. Talk to you soon.
0: If you go to monsterkidradio.net in the links section, you're going to find a link to Steve's website, stephendesullivan.com or sdullivan.com, cushinghorrors.com. Or look him up on Facebook. Seriously, guys and gals, he's one of us, and he puts out some great material. So consider this the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval for all things Stephen D. Sullivan. Steve, thanks for being part of the show this week. I really appreciate it. And, yeah, we'll have you back on the show again in the future. And, yes, listeners, Steve and I are going to do the rallies again. I say again because we actually recorded months ago about the winners of this year's rally awards, but... The computer ate the file. Something happened. The audio was just garbage. And honestly, it was a little disheartening. And I thought about just shelving the whole thing. But after talking with Steve, we're going to get together and re-record that segment. So that will be happening in the near future as well. Probably after episode 300. But again, stay tuned to find out.
7: He who is buried here shall henceforth have no name shall cease to exist in the minds of man as she has ceased to exist in life.
4: For thousands upon thousands of years she lay there, perfectly preserved in all her beauty, in all her evil.
3: do have her name,
4: Kara. Oh, it's beautiful.
7: Wear it always. Wear it now. Here.
4: Across the centuries to another time, to another place, she is back amongst the living to claim all that is hers. You're going to kill me?
2: Oh, no, no, no!
4: to threaten those who woke her from her eternal sleep
5: resurrection
4: a rebirth for terror.
5: complete
8: control over life over death
7: It was her, as large as life, standing over there. No.
5: It happened. You have to help me. You know its power. I have no mind left, no will.
4: In the name of Terra, she is back. To destroy those who helped to raise her evil flesh and blood from the mummy's tomb.
2: Dr. Pepper signed the certificate natural
8: causes, but I should have thought from the look of the poor fellow that he died of fright. This is a frightened village. Here it is wiser to close your ears to a scream in the night. In this place, even familiar things take on an odd and terrifying significance. A funeral moves under the cloak of night. But no one inquires who has died, nor why the corpses are dispatched with such desperate haste. Starring Peter Cushing as the parson who knew every secret of The Night Creatures. Yvonne Romaine and Oliver Reed as two young people who loved the shadow of terror. I've always been respectful to you, haven't I? But I've had to keep my real feelings to myself until now. Patrick Allen as the courageous Captain Collier who sailed the seven seas in search of danger and found it in The Night Creatures. Ah!
0: For listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, it kind of came together in an odd way for me. Normally, I plan these things out a little bit better, but you know, I wanted to talk to Jackie, and then with the trailer for the Mummy coming out, I had to talk about that too. And you know, I just I hope you enjoyed the Monster Kid Radio double feature this week. So much more to talk about when it comes to what Universal is doing with their United Shared Cinematic Universe thing. There's a lot that Steve and I did not talk about, and I'm sure it's a conversation that we could continue to have down the line. I didn't bring up 1979's movie Wolfman to talk about other movies that have used titles from the Universal back catalog. I didn't talk about who's doing the music for the new Mummy movie, Brian Tyler, and what I think about him. There's just a lot to talk about and unpack. And as we get more information and more news, I'm sure we'll talk about it on future episodes of Monster Kid Radio. But I also want to hear what you guys and gals have to say about the new Mummy movie. If you have any thoughts, comments, insights, links to anything that you found online that you found interesting... I did find an unsubstantiated rumor online that somebody, and I don't know if it was somebody at Universal or just somebody being hopeful. Somebody said that the original Universal movies, the Bela Lugosi, the Boris Karloff, all of these are actually going to be in continuity with this new Universal push. Now, I I don't know if that's true. I couldn't find anything to back that up. It may have just been somebody being funny on Facebook, but if that's the case, um, that opens things up even more in terms of conversations that we could have. Anyway, I want to hear your thoughts. So if you have anything you want to share with us here on the show, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at five zero three four seven nine five six five seven. That's five zero three four seven nine five M K R. Now that is a Google voicemail, which means it's got a three minute limit. If you have more than three minutes of material to contribute, well, you can do it in multiple voicemails or record your own audio file and send it in that way to MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Of course, if you have any other feedback for the show about anything that we've ever talked about on monster kid radio, or just anything about being a monster kid, we'd love to hear from you as well. Like this email that I got from Patricia T. I love this email. I'm going to read it to you. I have to tell you this Derek, because I think it's funny and weird. I've been a big fan of your podcast for over a year and I wait not so patiently until the latest one is available. During the Christmas holidays, I'm in the kitchen baking cookies and other goodies, and luckily I have a mini iPad so I can just put it on the counter and listen to you while I bake. I realized somewhere along the line that I hadn't heard any podcasts from earlier years, so now I'm baking for hours while listening to all those older monster podcasts, especially the ones about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, my favorites. As an aside, they're a couple of my favorites, too. Anyway, Pat continues. If my Santas and gingerbread men turn out looking a lot like Dracula and the Mummy, it's not my fault. So instead of, like most grannies, who turn on the Christmas carols, I have you and your Monster Surf music in the background. I wonder how many of your fans are doing the same thing. It staggers the mind, doesn't it? And she signs it, Best Fan Forever. Patricia, you know what? This is an awesome email. I love this email. I shared it with my wife, and uh, she just thought it was awesome. And... Patricia, thank you. Yeah, like I said, uh, Bela and Boris, a couple of my favorites. You know, we haven't talked about Bela or Boris specifically here on the show lately. I do have a recording on deck that I've done with Rich Chamberlain, and it's about a non legosi non-Karloff film. But at the end of that conversation, we talk a little bit about Karloff, and he and I have agreed in the future I'm going to have him on the show, and we're going to talk about the film The Boogeyman Will Get You. So that'll be coming up here Probably the first part of next year, depending on scheduling and making everything happen. So that's coming. Something to look forward to. Patricia, again, thank you for writing in. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a happy holiday season. And you know what? There is nothing wrong with a Santa cookie or a gingerbread cookie turning out to look a lot like a Dracula or mummy cookie. At least in my book around here, that's a win. And she brings up an interesting idea. I'd love to hear what you guys and gals, what you monster kids are doing to celebrate the holidays But keeping it Monster Kid flavored. I'd like to know what Monster Kids are doing this time of year. And it looks like we are just a couple of episodes away from the episode that I'm going to devote to, well, the holiday season. So if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share with your fellow Monster Kid radio listeners, call it in. I'd love to put you in the mix on episode 299, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Before we get to episode 299, we get to episode 298, because that's how numbers work. That's next week, and finally it's happening. I've got Scott Morris coming back to the show. We're going to get our apes on. We're going to talk about 1973's battle for the planet of the apes. We want guns! Now, the final chapter in the Incredible Ape
7: Saga. There it is. Our war's
8: this is the hell my forefathers used to speak about
5: this background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour
7: the battlefield a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped the prize the right to inherit what's left of the earth the contestants ape against man the most unbelievable showdown ever filmed as the mutants Strange, transformed men who live underground like moles battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain.
8: They're getting away. Kill them.
7: the human, and then we will smash Caesar. I don't want to have to remember my husband. I want to love him now. But we who
4: survive create a new race.
0: In the aftermath of his victory, the surface of the world was ravaged by the vilest
3: war in human history.
7: Climaxing the epic series which made motion picture history comes the last, the most spectacular of all the ape adventures. Now, fight like Out of the Forbidden City, they roared to settle once and for all who had the right to rule the planet,
0: ape or man. I've been sitting on that recording for a few weeks now. I can't wait to share it with everybody. This is the fifth and final film in the original Planet of the Apes series, film series anyway. And, man, I had a blast going through these movies with Scott. I regret not doing it in a more concise fashion, meaning I stretched this thing out for quite a bit, and I, I wish maybe I had put it all together. Although... I have every intention of going back and watching all the movies again in order, and I'd like to do it maybe over the course of two or three days. I think that'd be a blast just to kind of see how they progress back to back to back like that. I also did get my hands on the book Planet of the Apes as American Myth by Eric Green. Paul McComas mentioned that last week on Monster Kid Radio. I'm eager to dive into that. And, of course, there's a bunch of other Planet of the Apes material out there that i have since added to my Amazon wish list because – Man, I love this series. I could see myself becoming a huge Planet of the Apes fan. You don't scratch that. I am a huge Planet of the Apes fan now. So that's next week. Lots of stuff coming down the pipe here at Monster Kid Radio. Stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net to keep up to date on that. Or check us out on Facebook. We have a Facebook group that you can join and get into conversations with other MKR listeners between episodes. We also have a Monster Kid Radio page that you can like. And that way you at least get notifications from Facebook if the algorithms are working right that day about what we've got coming up on Monster Kid Radio as well. I do have a Twitter page and I am trying to figure out what to do with it. I really am. But I am on Twitter at Monster Kid Radio. Steve mentioned the Patreon campaign that we have. We do have the ability for you to become a patron of Monster Kid Radio to help support the show. That way, this is available at MonsterKidRadio.net as well, as well as links to everything else that we talk about here on the show. Jackie's appearance is coming up. Steve's website's. It's all there. Finally, before wrapping up, I want to thank everybody who supported us on iTunes by giving us an honest iTunes review. They really do help a lot because the more reviews we get, the more likely the podcast might come up in different searches. And, I mean, that's good for the show. The more listeners, the merrier. So if you're an iTunes user and you haven't done so, please consider heading over there to give us an honest review of the show. I want to thank everybody for listening. It's been a blast this week. I hope you guys and gals dug it. I certainly did. I also want to thank the band Surfing Nanorobots. They're that Russian band that just put out the album, Seven O'Clock. We're going to end on their song, Night Creatures and Me. You can find them online on Bandcamp. They're part of the Dystopian World Productions Bandcamp page. So it'd be dwprod.bandcamp.com. You can find their album as well as a number of other albums that are involved with Dystopian World Productions. You can also look them up on their Russian website which I can't read. But if you can read Russian or want to use Google Translate, you can check them out online as well. That's at a long URL that I probably can't pronounce right anyway, so I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net as well. Between now and next week, remember that all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license, and that pretty much covers everything, but the song, Night Creatures and Me. Check it out, and I'll talk to everybody next week. Tchau.